I often wonder what must have been going through Abraham's mind when God made his covenant with him. How do you process, how do you wrap your mind around the God who created the heavens and the earth coming to you, to someone who seems very insignificant in the grand scheme of things, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb coming to you and saying, get up and and let's go somewhere because I've got a plan for you. And I promise that I am going to give you and your children this land that I've dedicated especially for you. And while we're on the subject of children, don't laugh. I know you're old and I know you don't have any children, but I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. That if you looked in the sky and if you looked on the the shore of the beach and if you tried to count every grain of sand and you can't, and if you tried to count every star in the sky and again, you can't, but if you could and if you could total their number, your children, the number of your children would outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the shore. How do you wrap your mind around the God of the universe telling you that your people, that your children, that this great nation that he's going to make you into will one day be a blessing and the means of salvation for the entire world? I wonder if he imagined what the land could have looked like and what it was going to be like when his people finally arrived. I wonder if once he got done with his doubting and his fear about having children at such an old age, I wonder if he began to imagine what his child might look like when he held him in his hands and what it might look like if he could possibly imagine seeing his children grow into more children, into more children, and then become a mighty nation. But I especially wonder what he thought it would look like for God to use his family, his descendants, to bless the entire world. And for us, we don't have to imagine what that looks like. Because we have the viewpoint of the covenant that God made with Abraham on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Paul says, was born under the law, was born in the lineage of Abraham, was born in the lineage of God's people, was born into the Jewish world and into the Hebrew world and became the Jewish Savior of the entire world and of all people and of all nations who would come and trust in Him. As we look at Psalm chapter 117 this morning, we find this passage of Scripture stuck directly in the middle, directly in the tension between God's promise to Abraham and its fulfillment in Christ. And Psalm 117 is very unique in the midst, not of just these Hallel Psalms that we've been talking through over the past several weeks, but in the whole Bible, Psalm 117 is very unique. See, Psalm 117 is the shortest of the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 117 is the shortest of all of the Psalms. And in fact, Psalm chapter 117 is the shortest chapter in all of Scripture. And yet within this very short chapter of Scripture, we see contained in it a very big message. We see a big picture. We see a global call and an eternal hope. Last week we looked at Psalm chapter 116, which was a very personal psalm designed for corporate worship. And today we're going to see the other end of that spectrum as we see a psalm that's designed for God's people all over the world, for people of all nations to use to be able to praise the God who is the creator of all nations. 
Psalm 117 is a picture of true, unending hallel or unending praise that echoes through all of eternity. And for the people gathered around at the time who were worshiping using this psalm, it was a foreshadowing of God's plan to bring salvation to all peoples of all nations and to bring about a new creation with people of all tribes and tongues who have been redeemed by the same Christ who can worship the God who loves them and created them with one voice now and forevermore. And so just like we have every week, I'm going to ask for your assistance in reading Psalm chapter 117. Because these psalms were designed to be used in in the worship of God's people corporately. And so like everything else, I'll read the plain text and let's all read the bold text aloud. Don't worry, it's very short today. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as always at this time, we thank you for your word. And that your word is true and that your word is good. But also that your word is for us. And in this very short psalm, we're reminded of the deep love that you have for us, that you have for the nations, that you have for the people that you created. And so I pray and I ask God that this morning you teach us to answer that call to worship. That you remind us of how much you love us and then out of your love for us, that you would give us a love for the nations to go into all the world and proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in whom there is no slave or Greek, male or female, Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ brought together under His precious blood and His one resurrection. So Father, speak to us this morning through Your Holy Spirit and help us to leave here with a new passion and a deeper love than we had when we came in. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we see here in this passage, like we have in several of these passages, is an invitation to praise God. Psalm 117 begins with an invitation to praise God, but it's a very unique invitation compared to all the other psalms. And what's so amazing about the Old Testament is that the deeper that we go into the Old Testament, we begin to see a noticeable change in tone and tension. Because from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, we realize that something isn't right. That there's something broken, there's something that needs to be renewed in our world. And so we start the Bible off almost from the very beginning with this problem that needs to be solved. And the deeper that we go into the Old Testament, the more we realize how big this problem really is. Because we see God call Abraham, we see God call Moses, and we see people like Joshua and Esther and these leaders who rose up and and stepped out on faith and did what God called them to do. We see David building the city and building, we see Solomon build the temple of God in the midst of his people, and it looks like everything is going well, and then all of a sudden we realize how flawed we all are. 
Because David wasn't enough to solve the problem. Solomon wasn't enough to solve the problem. The temple wasn't enough. The priests and their sacrifices, it wasn't enough. And so the deeper we go, the more we realize that not only is something broken, but something is really broken, and even the best that humanity has to offer isn't enough to fix that problem. But as that tension grows and grows, so does another voice in Scripture. Because we begin to see these whispers that God has a plan. And it starts even in Genesis chapter 3 when God promises that one day He's going to reverse the effects of the curse that sin brought into the world. And the deeper that we go into the Old Testament, we start hearing the voice of the prophets who are calling out warnings against Israel, but they also have messages of hope saying that something is broken, but God has a plan. That something better, or in fact someone better, is coming to do for us what we couldn't do on our own. And it's in the middle of that tension that we find this psalm. And this passage throws us back to Abraham. And the people, as they were confessing this truth, as they would sing this psalm in their worship, they would remember the promise that God had to Abraham, not only that he was going to have this land, not only that he was going to become a mighty nation because of his children and their descendants, but that one day their people would be a blessing to the entire world. And so because of that, as they threw back to Abraham, even though the people didn't know it at the time, they were also looking forward to Christ. But it was also for the people of ancient Israel at that exact moment. The people that were gathered in worship, the people that were gathered at their feasts and their festivals, offering up this psalm of praise. Because this invitation was no less true for all the people that could hear it then than it is for us now on this side of Christ. And one of the interesting things about the Old Testament is that even though the Old Testament is very Israel-centric, it's not Israel-exclusive. Even though the nation and the people of Israel are the centerpiece to everything that God is doing all through the Old Testament, we know that they're not the only people that God was working through. And we see that the plan was always for the people of all nations to worship God because He's the Creator of all people. And we see that truth woven through the text as we see some people show up and we see God redeem them and save them and we see these people from other places outside of ancient Israel begin to worship God. It happens very early on, even in the life of Abraham. When Abraham is approached by this Persian king named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a worshiper and a priest of the one true God to the point where even when he came, Abraham himself offered homage to Melchizedek. And so we see that even from the beginning, even as God was calling Abraham, that God was already interacting with and calling worshipers from other places. In the book of Joshua, we see that with a woman named Rahab. Possibly the most unlikely convert to a worshiper of God inside of all of Scripture because this was a woman who was a Canaanite prostitute who seemed to be from the outside the least likely candidate for God to graft into his people. And yet because of her faith in God and because of her love for God's people, when God's people came into Jericho and God delivered the city into their hands, not only was Rahab saved, but she and her entire family lived the rest of their lives in the midst of the people of God as worshipers of God. And Rahab became part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews 11 along with people like Abraham because of her faith. We see it with Ruth. 
A Moabite woman who just out of her faithfulness to her mother-in-law was brought in again into the lineage of Jesus himself and became a worshiper and a follower of God. If you were here about a month and a half ago, we were talking through the book of Jonah. I was preaching through the book of Jonah and we saw how God reached out to these pagan sailors on the way to Tarshish and showed them his power and his might and his mercy and they worshipped God. And that wasn't where that story ended because at the end of the story, Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh and through Jonah's preaching and the kindness of God, the Ninevite people who worshipped all these other gods who were living steeped in sin turned away from their evil ways and began to worship the one true God. And maybe my favorite story of all of these comes in the book of Daniel with King Darius. King Darius, the Persian king, decided because of some of his influencers around him that it would be a really good idea that no one could worship anyone else but him. After all, he's the king. He's basically a deity. And so he offers up this edict, and of course, Daniel, being a faithful man of God, never wavered in his prayers to God, and in fact, boldly kneeled before his window three times a day. And so with a hard heart, the king made good on his promise, and he sent Daniel into the lion's den, assuming he was sending him to his death. But as we know, the story didn't end that way, and Daniel comes out the next day, and this is what Darius says in response Daniel 6.25 says, Then King Darius wrote to, and I love this, all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. This is how much Darius' life was changed by seeing God's power that he wrote out an edict to everyone that could possibly read of all peoples, all nations, and all languages. And this is what he said. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall have no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. So we see God time and time again, even as he was working directly through the people of Israel, reaching out and bringing people from other nations and tribes and tongues in to be worshipers of God as these little hints and whispers that one day this will be completed. And these Egyptian Hillel Psalms that we've been talking about may be rooted in Israel's story, but they are for all nations. Their purpose and their design is to gather the whole world in praise to God. And I love the way that the psalmist uses the repetition of this passage. In verse 1, it says, praise the Lord all nations, extol him all peoples. And that repetition in the psalms is often used to show emphasis, but here it almost gives a sense of, of assurance. Like the psalmist says, praise the Lord all the nations, and then he says it again to say, no, really, you are invited to come and to praise and to worship God. It doesn't matter where you were born or who you were born to, but this is your invitation to come and to worship the God who created you and gave you life. And what's even more amazing, at least for us, about this passage is that this passage is very much a call to us. Because we have to remember that unless you're here and you're of of Jewish or Hebrew heritage, 
we're part of all nations. It can be really easy to forget that the United States of America is not ancient Israel. Sometimes it can be easy to forget that the book of Psalms wasn't written in Atlanta, and it wasn't written about us, and it wasn't written for us. And so this call to all people and to all nations is a call to us as well. And when we get to sing this song, when we get to read the psalm and pray through this psalm, it should resonate deeply within us because it reminds us that we are not only invited to worship God, but as people living on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ, it reminds us why we're invited to worship God and how we're invited to worship God. In Romans 15, verse 8 through 13, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised or to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Basically, Paul says there that Christ came into the world as a Hebrew man to show that the promises of God are true and to answer that covenant of Abraham. And then Paul starts quoting Scripture. And in verse 9 he says, And in order that the Gentiles, or all nations, might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And then this quotation should sound familiar to you because Paul says, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, or all you nations, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul takes this psalm and he says this psalm is about Jesus. The way that this is able to happen in its fullness for all people of all nations and all tribes and tongues to worship God happens because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, as Paul said, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us and to save us and to offer up salvation to the world. And it's because of that that we can have this hope and joy and peace that comes in knowing Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. When we read this passage, we're reminded that we are Ruth. We are Rahab. We are Nineveh. We are Darius. We are people that God reached out for and brought us in through the precious blood of Christ. He reached out to where we were once and for all through His Son. And so our calling is to praise the Lord. Our response to this should be to praise the Lord like we're getting away with something. To praise the Lord like we got into a party that we weren't invited to. To praise the Lord like we've got a few thousand years to make up for. And so as part of the nations, let's answer this call and this invitation to praise God with everything that we have. But it doesn't stop with the invitation. Because Psalm 117 also gives us a reason to praise. It's good for me. Because my whole life, I've had authority issues. I feel like I'm getting better now that I'm getting older, but it was a long process. And when I was younger especially, there was something in me that hated to be told or even asked to do something without giving ample reasons. And I now hear this 
echoed in the tiny mouth of my tiny daughter and then in the eyes of the daughter who can't talk yet. It's there. I see it. She can't say it yet, but there's just something in there that's like, explain yourself or I'm doing nothing for you. And I get that because that lives inside of me too. And so there's something really comforting to me about the Hillel Psalms because God certainly has every right and every reason to tell us or to ask us to do something and to give us absolutely no reason why. But here in these passages of Scripture, he doesn't. The Hallel Psalms don't ask us or tell us to do anything without telling us why it's important. And so as we see here in this passage, this isn't a suggestion. It doesn't say, would you like to praise God, all of you nations? Or I think it would be a good idea if you can fit it in your schedule to praise the God, all you nations. But it's a direct commandment to praise the Lord, all nations. And so we can faithfully ask the question, why, and we can receive an answer. And if we ask, why do the nations praise the Lord? The answer is very simply, because God loves the nations. In verse 2, it says, for great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And I love that pronoun that's used there because instead of saying for great is his steadfast love for the nations it says great is his steadfast love for us this all-encompassing love of all people of all nations of all tribes and of all tongues and so the psalmist says praise the lord all you nations because god has a steadfast love and a faithfulness that's directed towards you Part of the result of this fall of sin that we were talking about earlier is that we take the good things that God gives us and the good things that God is, the image of God that we were created in, and we begin to mess things up. And we see that when it comes to the isms of our world. We're people that that tend to like isms, whether we say it out loud or not. We're prone towards tribalism towards this idea of bonding together and coming together with people who agree with us on things or or, are like us on things or are like-minded with us and we can band ourselves together and if we're not careful, we can begin looking out at the other tribes in our world and becoming very suspect of those tribes and even to the point of hate. We see it in the form of something like nationalism where we believe that because we were born in a certain place or we're a certain people or we have a certain cultural identity that we are somehow better or superior or different than the rest of the world around us. And so we start looking at ourselves as good and everyone else as sketchy at best, but sometimes downright evil. We know it happens in racism and sexism and classism. We could go on and on and on where we take the steadfast faithfulness of God for all nations and we turn it into something sour where we lift ourselves or people like us or a certain group or type of people and we raise them up and put everyone down and we only offer that steadfast love to some. Thank God that's not who he is. And thank God that's not how he works. Because this psalm reminds us that God, as a loving and perfect creator, has never made any mistakes. And so we see contained in the truth of this psalm that every language, that every geographic divide, every shade of skin, every gender, every economic status is designed by a creative God that loves his creation and loves us no matter who we are, no matter where we find ourselves, or no matter what situation we find ourselves in. 
Because God is a creative God who creates diversity for the purpose of His glory and His grace and His praise. Our oldest daughter, Josie, is about to turn four in a couple months. And she's really getting to the point where she's noticing differences. She notices difference in hair color. She notices difference in skin color. She notices difference in how people are built and how people, how, what size people are and all this kind of stuff. And so when it's tall people, when it's people uh, of different skin color, when it's different eye color, even if it's just the way that people cut their hair, she's asking questions. And so it's a really great opportunity now where we get to teach Josie about the, the creative beauty of God and how God creates us different for a reason and that God creates us differently to give us different gifts and abilities and to show his goodness and his grace. And one day we were walking in Home Depot. It's one of her favorite places to go. And so we were walking through Home Depot and we weren't talking about any of this stuff and she just randomly asked me if Jesus likes blue. Like, well, I, I, I suppose so. It seems, seems like kind of a weird question, Josie. And I'm used to weird questions because I'm weird. And, and so because of that, just by the laws of heredity, she's weird. And so we say weird things to each other. So I was like, yeah, it's a weird question, but sure. Yeah, I think so. And so I followed up with why. Why are you asking that? And she said, well, Jesus made my eyes blue. So I thought Jesus must love blue. And that's what it is to understand the creative nature of God. That God loves the nations. That God loves the people. That God loves the beauty of his diversity. And what we find in this passage isn't just a call for some people to worship some God somewhere, but it's a call for people of all nations to praise the God who not only created them as they were, but loves them with a steadfast love and a faithfulness that will never pass away. And the structure of this psalm, again, is so good because as we've seen in every passage so far, these psalms are designed to fuel our fire for unending praise. And so it begins with the call to praise the Lord, and then it tells us why, and then again at the bottom it says, praise the Lord. And so the psalmist and the people as they're offering up these praises and for us today we are called to praise the Lord because he loves us and because he has a steadfast love and a faithfulness for us and that because God has a deep and steadfast and faithful love for us that's reason to praise the Lord. And so the more we praise him, the more we realize his steadfast love for us. And the more that we realize his steadfast love for us, the more reason we have to praise him. And so this cycle should just continue and continue so that we can do what we're called to do in 113 and 115 and praise the Lord and bless the Lord from this time now and forevermore. Because we have a reason to praise. And the more that we know that reason, the more we should praise. And then we can look at what we do with our praise. Last week, we talked about taking our private praise and making it public. And we also have the responsibility to take this invitation to praise and make it global. And one of the cool things about worship and about liturgy, about the things that we do in the life of the church, is they're not just praise, but they're also performance. And I don't say that in a bad way. I think sometimes there can be an inclination with the idea of performance and worship that's bad. And there's certainly ways that we can do that that would be. If our desire as we worship, as we pray, as we read, as we confess, is to draw people's attention to ourselves, then that's certainly not the way that we're supposed to conduct ourselves. But there is a certain element of performance when it comes to the way that we worship God. Because anytime we worship God, if there's anyone in our midst who doesn't, they get to see the gospel put on display. 
We usually think about that with a sermon because it's one person standing up just talking at everybody else. And so that makes sense that this is teaching time. But when we sing psalms that talk about the steadfast love of God, when we sing songs that talk about the 10,000 reasons that we have to praise and to worship the God who saved us by his grace and mercy, when we sing the songs as we're going to in a little bit about the mystery of Christ, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, we are declaring to anyone around us the beauty and the truth of God's word. When we offer up our confessions, we're doing the exact same thing. The sacraments may be the most obvious form of that because when we come to the table to take communion on the second Sunday of every month for us, when we come to the table to take communion, we are painting a picture in our bodies and what we're doing of the gospel. We see a picture of Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out and the fact that his grace and mercy is offered freely to us. Something like baptism takes a very deep, and hard to understand concept and puts it in a picture form that we can understand. Because you can talk to someone about how when you put your faith in Christ that the sinfulness inside of you dies, that the old nature dies and you've been raised again with Christ just like he was raised from the dead. But that's hard to grasp in these ambiguous terms sometimes. And so God gave us baptism so that we could look at someone and when they're put under the water and raised again, we're reminded of not only the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, but we're reminded of the spiritual death and burial and resurrection that Jesus gives to each and every one of us who trust in him for salvation and we see a picture of our future hope when Christ comes again to make all things right and all things new and we will be physically and bodily resurrected to be with Christ forever. This psalm isn't just an invitation for the people who worship God, the people who believe in God to give him praise but it's a declaration to those who don't. It's a declaration to the world around at this time Israel and for all of us now as we echo these words that were written for ancient Israel and now reflect the goodness of Christ. They're a declaration to the world around us that there is a God who loves you with a steadfast love and faithfulness and he's worthy of your honor and your praise. And so this isn't just for me, but it's for you as well. And for the church, as we read this psalm, hidden inside this psalm of praise is a reminder that there are nations, that there are people who don't worship God. And so not only when we encounter this psalm are we called into worship, but we're also called into action. As we see the words that say, praise the Lord all nations, it should remind us that yes, we are invited to worship God freely and fully, but also that there are people in our world who need to hear about the grace and mercy of God and who need to hear this invitation to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we need to recognize that it's our responsibility to go to them. In Acts chapter 1, we see the end of Jesus' ministry after his resurrection. He's been walking around and teaching and doing all these incredible things where the people could see him to the point where Luke, when he was writing to Theophilus, said, if you don't believe me, there's about 500 people that I could drum up that you could talk to them who walked with Jesus and heard the resurrected Jesus teach, and you can ask them if I'm lying. 
And so there's a great multitude of people surrounding Jesus, and he looked at his disciples and he said, you're going to be my witnesses. I started this process, and now you're going to go out and bless the nations with the truth of this gospel, and so you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes away. In this moment that we call the ascension, Jesus is taken up into heaven in front of their eyes. And that's a weird thing. And so very likely and very reasonably, the people were looking at the sky trying to figure out what just happened in front of them. And then a messenger of God interrupts what's happening. And he says, what are you, what are you doing? Jesus is he's going to prepare a place for you and he's given you your work. Why are you staring up into the sky? There's work to do. And in the same way, we have that calling as we praise the Lord that we are called to praise the Lord with our shoes on. That we're called to praise God and as we do, to go out and to praise God in the presence of the nations to remind ourselves we can't just stand by staring up at the sky, but we have work to do in the meantime as we wait for Christ to come and make all things new. We have this responsibility to take our praise public and all over the world for God's glory and for the good of the nations. And as we're reminded of the truth in this passage of Scripture that God loves the nations and that He loves the people of this world, then that should fuel our desire as well to love the nations and love the people of this world. And the best way that we can do that is to go and meet them where they are with the truth of the gospel, also doing what Christ did and meeting their needs as we go. And for us, this means the nations around the world and the nations next door. And one of the things that has been part of our heartbeat since the very beginning as Redeeming Grace Community Church and is the heartbeat of the church as a whole around the world, but one of the things that we're going to be focusing on very intently over the next year is how we are going to start the process of reaching the nations. So thankful that Adam is here, and as the pastor of Community and Mission, this has been Adam's passion, and he's been working really hard about ways that we're going to be able to do this. And so we started even just this past week with our Backyard Bible Club at Walton Plain Community, our neighbors. And so we have had an incredible opportunity to meet the people who are living right next door to our church and care for their children for the last week. And just through that, we saw several doors open up to where now we have some possibilities to be able to be there, hopefully God willing, on a weekly basis. And we pray that one day it could be even a daily basis as we minister to people where they are and we share the good news of the grace and mercy of God with them and we invite them to praise God with us. But we're also looking at at how we are going to go literally to the nations. And we plan by next summer, Lord willing, that we'll be taking our first international mission trip. And Adam has been working really hard and praying really hard, and we'll be talking through where that place is going to be because we want to adopt one place that we can call our own, that we build relationships and that we invest in and that we send our prayers, that we send our resources and that we send our people to, to love and to serve that place. And as we know, we want to be a church that plants churches. And so if God sees fit to allow us to grow and to allow us to be a church that can send out new church plants over and over and over again, as those churches plant and grow, then they'll find places internationally and domestically to love and to serve. And so through this very small little place that we call Redeeming Grace Community Church, we have an incredible opportunity to love and serve our neighbors and the nations. We're going to get to do that through our small group ministry that's beginning this fall. 
as we start placing small groups in the neighborhoods of the people of our church, and we're praying that we'll have small groups eventually meeting in the neighborhoods here directly around our church. And while those are certainly going to be focused towards Bible study and fellowship, they're also going to be focused towards loving and serving those neighborhoods and meeting the nations that live within those neighborhoods and sharing the good news of the grace and mercy of God. Because that invitation isn't just for us alone, but it's an invitation to go out to all people, all places of all tongues and tribes, and share with them the good news that God loves them with a steadfast love and has offered up Christ as this picture of salvation for people of all nations. And then no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter how disqualified you think that you may be, you are invited to come and to worship God in spirit and in truth because He loves you and offered up Christ for you. And as we do this, as we take our praises public and our praises globally, we'll continue to build an imperfect picture of what will one day be perfected. It's our desire that our churches reflect our community and the nations, that we have people of all different places and backgrounds that come together and worship God, because again, we are putting on a performance of something better that will one day come. And we see that picture in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And I hope that sounds familiar. A multitude greater than the number of the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, the fullness of the promise to Abraham. He says, I saw that great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's our hope. That's our assurance that we have in Christ that one day that we will stand before the throne of God with that great multitude too large to number and we will get to be a part of those nations singing our praise to God and declaring that salvation belongs to our God. And until then, it's our job to praise the Lord and extol Him. Because great is His steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of doors forever, so we praise the Lord. And as we do, we can bask in His love and in His grace and His mercy and in His faithfulness. And then we go out and we share it with the nations around us. And to leave in our wake a legacy of people of all nations, of all tribes and all tongues, praising the Lord.